I'm going to uh, give, give a lecture that's quite literally all over the place because I'm trying to, to map the European field and to do some very deep mentality historical uh, tropes, uh, long-term tropes in the discourse by which Europe sets itself, itself off against other parts of the world. And this goes beyond straightforward Eurocentrism. Uh, it's about the, an attempt to uh, outline a, a European self-image. Um, in order to do that, I will have to do a few things on imagology, uh, the stuff I'm doing, as, as Jürgen said, and to see how we can map uh, the interdependence of, between self-images and images of the other, and the discursive articulations that result from that, um, which we can do okay in the case of nationalities, but we have never really applied to Europe as an imagological construct. Um, so that, that, that'll be a bit out on a limb and uh, at a very high generalization level. And I want to identify one particular trope, uh, which is that of domesticity in the discursive opposition between uh, Europe and the rest of the world. Um, also operated in, uh, generally in a sort of poetic de l'espace sort of way, so bachelors in the background somewhere. And then um, having tried to, to outline some trends that play into our present, you know, um, shall we say, um, agoraphobia. In a, in a wide open world that is threatening the domesticity of Europe and that leads to migrant crises and all types of Eurocentric xenophobia, I want to look at some complicating factors, maybe a rather problematic uh, notion of Europe as um, uh, a locus of, of nomadic existences, Bohemians, gypsies, etc. Uh, and at the same time, Europe as a house that is not really working, an unheimlich imitation house, a casbah rather than uh, an ordered state. So I'll be complicating the, the, the European discourse towards that. That's a lot to cover in three quarters of an hour. Um, uh, at least I can prob promise you I'll be very rapid and very superficial. Uh, if there's any time left, I might show some video clips at the end, and otherwise we'll keep it. Keep it. Okay, this is where I started. This was where the conference started, and this is where, where my reflections started. This is the infamous UKIP uh, poster about Brexit, where we see uh, not quite the Turks at the gates of Vienna, but more or less the uh, 21st century equivalent of that. With a curious uh, phrase, we must break free of the EU and take back control of our borders. Uh, so what's happening here? Um, Britain, as an isolationist force, at least the UK electorate, is afraid that the, the big bad world is being let into Europe. And as a response, it wants to get out of Europe. So you basically go into that big bad world outside Europe that you're afraid of. So there's a really weird fractal confusion between how safe it is outside, how safe it is inside. How can, and uh, it, it set me thinking about a phrase, uh, a very important phrase by Heraclitus, uh, which is um, very fundamentally at the bottom of a lot of our philosophy and legal thought. It's in the fragments where Heraclitus says, we should protect our laws like our city walls. It's a very interesting uh, hanging together uh, between the uh, idea that the city is bounded in space, that it has a defensible outside, a skin, if you like, that keeps the bacteria out and that keeps our organs inside. So it's sort of a real demarcation between purity and danger, between a wild world outside and an ordered space inside. And this is done both spatially and institutionally through the discourse of laws, so the regulation of society. And anything that threatens this joint uh, demarcation of spatial boundedness by taking control of your borders 
and internal order by having laws governing the relations in society is obviously seen as threatening. So this poster is very, very deep-rooted assumptions in a European discourse. And that's what I would like to unpack. Um, it also reminded me of a, a wino I saw in North Dublin a couple of, uh, 15 years ago. I was taking a suburban bus from uh, Marino into the city centre. And there was a woman and child getting on the bus who, from their physique, I'd say were Somali or somewhere from the Horn of Africa. And there was a wino on the bus and he says, hey, look at that, it's like bloody Budapest. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, yeah, so this is an interesting psychogeography. Uh, <laughs> and basically, this is like in Budapest. I, I thought, well, what, what is it in the discourse that we need, as immigology need to address? So what is immigology and how would I tackle this from my particular expertise in the humanities? Immigology 101 is mapping ethnotypes. This is in the handbook that Jürgen referred to. And by ethnotype, I mean an ethnic stereotype. And more particularly, the idea that ethnicities have a certain specific temperament that governs their behavior. So uh, an ethnotype would be that the French are frivolous and oh la and the Germans are ponderous and uh, write six volume in, uh, introductions to elephantology, and the Irish are mercurial and broth of a boy in the top of the morning. So, yeah. um, and a very early insight was, of course, that these ethnotypes can very easily flip over into their opposite number, where the French suddenly become normal superior Cartesian rationalists, uh, as opposed to Orla, uh, you know, really from their characters, uh, that the ponderous German scholar can become a bloody-minded Nazi, um, and that the mercurial Irish can become a Yeatsian dreamer constantly with his head in the fifth dimension. So that all these stereotypes can easily flip over into their opposite number. That's a sort of discursive economies and rhetorical strategies that immigology studies, that's bare basics, it's 101, and what we have seen is that there are very strong self-other dynamics at work. You will not be surprised to hear this, this is you know, not really a new insight at all, um, that whatever you say about others has something to do with how you see yourself and vice versa, and that this self-other dynamics takes place at a multitude of levels. And what we try to taste, uh, trace is a sort of a, you know, um, a working triangle where we look at the intertextual paper trail. So how do these commonplaces propagate themselves? How do they propagate themselves from text to text, from author to author? How are they migrating across the centuries? What is the historical context for each of them? How come uh, the Leyenda Negra negative image of Spain, uh, of uh, the Inquisition and the Conquistadores, changes into a romantic Spain of castanets and bullfights, just at the time when Spain is the only country that's successfully resisting Napoleonic hegemony. So why do we get certain tipping points when suddenly we get these valor flips in stereotypes? How can they be historically mapped and explained? And thirdly, what is their rhetorical and narrative function inside the text? So how can we read books or uh, rhetoric and, and see how these cliches, these stereotypes, these ethnotypes function? From there, you can go a little further and say um, uh, you can identify uh, transnational frames, things that are not specific to the Germans or the Irish or the French, but that are at work at a more, at a more generic level. And as we now know in transnational studies, such frames are multiscalar. That means they happen at the supranational level and at the local level, and, and you know it's like Matroshka dolls uh, within cities and in Europe. Uh, and within countries and between countries, you can see, for instance, north-south oppositions. The north is cerebral, the south is sensuous. That can go for the Eurozone, 
the economies in the Eurozone are, you know, olive oil and mafia, and the Northern Europe is unimaginable plumbers who get the job done. But it also works within Germany between Hamburg and Bavaria, or within Italy between Milan and Sicily. So it's multi-scalar. You, you can find it anywhere. It's not really specific to any given um, uh, so social aggregate. The idea that centers are dynamic and that peripheries are static is everywhere. No matter where you put the center, where you put the periphery. Um, and the idea that there is a deep temperamental difference between honor societies, honor and shame societies, and middle class and barbarian societies, between what is known as status based societies versus contract based societies, is likewise to be seen uh, in our imagination of Corsica, in our imagination of the Punjab, in our imagination of many parts of the world. And it's obviously a one size fits all trope that we carry around in our head and apply to any case that meets our eye. What I find interesting also, something that I learned from gender studies recently, is the idea of intersectional identities. In order to look at ethnotypes, it's not enough just to take the ethnicity by itself. Uh, ethnicity is always inflected by other social stereotypes, gender, men are different from women, and what I will call sociotypes, that is to say, typical, uh, typical stereotypes concerning the moral regime of the aristocracy, the bourgeois middle classes with their work ethic, and the peasantry with their timeless traditions. So it's very different when you look at uh, the French, whether you're looking at old French or young French, or at mo uh, noble French, bourgeois French, or peasant French, and whether those are, uh, from case to case, men or women. So a young French nobleman is very different from an old French peasant or, or uh, bourgeois. So this is, it's much more complex than just reducing things to the ethnicity and how the ethnicity intersects with um, other forms of social stereotype. Uh, remains a challenging question. And this is something where um, we can move on further. Uh, oops, finally, uh, that there's a free repertoire of moral markers that we can pin onto anybody we like or dislike. That there are certain universal human virtues and vices which we can use as brownie points, as get-out-of-jail-free cards, whenever we want to represent a given group of people as being nice or not so nice. If we say that certain people are honest or that they have that they are hospitable, or that they have a work ethic, that they work hard, or that they are, you know, uh, harmonious families with marital fidelity and caring uh, love between parents and children, these are good people. Whereas if they don't have those particular markers, they're bad. I learned that lesson very strongly from uh, Anne Rigby, um, who looked at representations of the crowd in the French Revolution. Um, and, and she noticed that in the rhetoric of historical representation, people who were democratic, historians who were pro-democratic like Michelet, would usually single out the crowd as consisting of père de famille, of family fathers who'd left their children and wives at home in order to fight for democracy. So they were good guys. Whereas the people who were negative said that these were just bloody-minded uh, loners who were you know, violent and unhinged. So whether you could make the group sympathetic or not, by assigning them family values or not, was a very, very strong rhetorical ploy. If we go back to the news about migrants, it's obvious that the sign of a drowned, a drowned tubber on the beach will very strongly activate the sympathy we have for migrants who are families. And if you look at the arrival stories of migrants in Canada, they're usually families interviewed saying, how do you like it in Yellowknife? Uh, and then the father is talking and the 
and kids are talking to wife. So they're a family, they must be okay. Whereas if you look at the UK poster, these are not families. And usually they're just a lot of men. And the scenes in Cologne, when there were sort of mass aggressions and then initially the migrants were, it was all single young adult males, besides being my. They were non-familiar on the country, they were misogynistic, they were threatening women, and so they were anti-familiar. And then I thought there's a very interesting discourse at work that has to do with familiarity and domesticity as a strong mark of being acceptable in Europe or not being acceptable in Europe. And this is what I would like to pursue today. Um, and this is where I would like to map the idea of a European self-image in terms of the values of familiarity, domesticity, and also a bounded space, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, foyer familial, as the French uh, phrase would go, uh, the, household, uh, uh, the household that might be threatened uh, by wild, non-familial, non-domestic interlopers. This is what I'm going to do in ecology in Europe. I'm going to look at self-other reciprocity. How does Europe oppose itself against its others? And who are they across history and from time to time? How is the notion of familiarity or domesticity, the campfire and the hearth, uh, activated from time to time? Uh, and what is the footprint of Europe? What Europe are we talking about? What are its boundaries? What city walls in the Heraclitan terms are bounding this Europe? And I want to unravel the self-image in four phases, uh, ranging from uh, very old to the more, to more, to the more recent. Um, I start with uh, the oldest stratum of our uh, imaginaire, uh, which goes from Herodotus to uh, the late Roman Empire, where the others are Persians and barbarians. Uh, go to Europe as Christendom in the Middle Ages, Europe as civilization in the high Middle Ages, Renaissance and early modern period, and finally, in the contemporary period, Europe as a self-interrogation. Um, what we need to keep in mind is that in cultural history, the new does not abolish the old. You can say that in technological history, or in, uh, you know, it does. If we now have mobile phones, we tend not to use crank phones anymore. So new technology will drive out old technology. But in culture, the new is an overlay on top of the old, but doesn't abolish it. So we now listen um, to new forms of music, but we still listen to Beethoven and to Bach. They are not abolished by the fact that new stuff has added. And so too with our stereotypes. We now have new recent stereotypes, but if you unpeel the onion at the heart, there will still be the substratum of stereotypes that were formulated much, much longer ago in different circumstances. So you should see these as you know, superimposed strata in what becomes a sedimentary accumulation of stereotypes, each dating back to a particular paradigm or regime. And the footprint in the first instance is definitely Europe as the Eastern Mediterranean coastlands. The, uh, the threat uh, against that um, is usually seen as, as barbarians and others, and this becomes very strong. I'm going to hip -skip and, uh, hop, skip and jump now with uh, a thousand-year-long period where we get, uh, the uh, after the Persians, we get uh, the arrival of Islam. And it is then that Europe is actually first used as an ethnonym, as a name for people. The first time that Europensis is used as a, 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 a noun describing a group of people 
There's then a monk in Switzerland talks about the Battle of Tours, where Charles Martel defeats the Saracens. And he says, the Europeans have fought a victory against the invaders. Um, this starts in the 8th century, a discourse that the Europeans are those who have to fight Islamic invaders. Um, it reaches a high point with Pius II, who is a pope who is around when Constantinople is taken by Mehmed II, and who once again tries a crusade that now the fight against Islam is no longer taking place outside Europe, in the Holy Land or in the Mediterranean, but inside our own continent, in Constantinople. They have crossed the Bosporus. So Pius II, in trying to whip up um, a European uh, alliance against the Ottomans, is activating a type of a European discourse against others, which had been seven or 800 years in the making since the Battle of Tunisia. And we can see how this is really, despite it being a very, very long period, is held together by cultural continuities. I uh, um, uh, give you one example, just as a little thing. This is the, searcher, the, the church of St. Sergius and Bacchus. It's now uh, the little Hagia Sophia in, uh, in Istanbul. Uh, but you still see the Byzantine architecture, which is based on an octagon. Uh, in the Byzantine world, this octagon was uh, copied in Ravenna, uh, where it becomes the Church of San Vitale, so it's basically an, an outlying offshoot of uh, the Sergius and Bacchus Church. And of course, this played a very, very important role in the geopolitical quarrels of the early Middle Ages. It, uh, Ravenna was the capital of the Ostrogothic Kingdom, became Byzantine again, then was conquered by the Longobards, then was co conquered by Pippin, the king of the Franks, who gave it to the Pope. And the Pope rewarded Pippin by, making, by, by acknowledging Pippin's kingdom over the, Frank, uh, the Franks and paving the way uh, for, the, uh, uh, for Charlemagne. Um, so Charlemagne uh, realized the importance of this particular church in his claims to the imperial dignity. And when he built the church north of the Alps in Aachen, he used the octagon plan of uh, San Vitale as a secondary echo of uh, the Constantinople Church. So this is a claim by Charlemagne that he is an emperor and that he is the counterpart to the Byzantine emperor. Um, and the story doesn't end even there uh, because um, another Charles was crowned king of the Germans in this church um, in the 16th century. That was in 1521, I believe, Charles V. He was later crowned emperor in Bologna, I believe, but his his incarnation as king of the Germans took place here, and Charles V was acutely aware of the fact that he was the namesake of Charlemagne. And there's even a uh, biography, I think it's Einhard's biography of Charlemagne, which was reprinted in Cologne in 1521, which presents Charlemagne and Charles V side by side as you know the, the two guys who, who belong together. And uh, when Charles V has his honeymoon in the Alhambra in Granada, where he is king, um, you know, he decides to found a university there, much as Trinity College was founded in Dublin in order to give a, a Protestant think tank uh, in a Catholic country. The um, University of Granada was founded as a Christian strong point in the recently reconquered Kingdom of Granada uh, as, a, as a Catholic university. And Charles V built his palace inside the Alhambra. Most people know it as a total eyesore, sort of IKEA bunker inside this beautiful architecture of the Alhambra. But in the corner, and this is what I think is cute, is a little uh, octagon chapel. Um, so he is still trying. He is still recalling some sort of a translatio imperii, in a way, uh, in the form of you know three Charleses: Charles Martel, 
uh, Battle of Tours, uh, Char Charlemagne and Charles V, and a sort of migration of churches that you know, defines a center and defines a border, and that can easily, in these cultural echoes, tie together in some sort of a dynastic uh, historical awareness, a, an initial sense of a crystallizing Europe. That Europe is now no longer the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean has become a moat, a front line, you know, threatened by Islam from here and Islam from here, so it's retrenching into new footprints. This gives us a new discursive idea of what Europe stands for. It's very strongly defined in terms of its Christianity, and it is the reason why anti-Islamic discourse is such a very, very strong lingering tradition in Europe. If you want to understand the rhetorical clout of anti-Islamism in contemporary politics, it's not just a form of xenophobia, a pathology of us in the here and now, but also the incredibly long-standing cultural weight and habituation that we have to that type of discourse. We now enter a third phase, phase and that is um, uh, when, the, uh, when Europe starts looking across the Atlantic. I mean, this, this historical tipping point is well known. The Silk Route gets closed off by the Ottomans. Uh, produce from Asia has to reach Europe no longer through Damascus or through the old emporia of the Middle East. Um, Venice loses its function. Genoa begins to lose its function. We start moving out from the Olympic pillars of Hercules into the Atlantic. And what we encounter there is a new other for Europe. Europe has a new self-image and a new type of other. The other is now the savages of the new world. Um, and, um, uh, you know, uh, you can also talk about crusades and, and, uh, and others, uh, other others. But we have um, colonial encounters with savages, and this helps to uh, consolidate the self-image of Europe as a continent of progress. The, the idea that Europe is uniquely predicated on the idea that we do things better than our parents and that the rest of the world does not have this sense of progress takes place in the century of colonial expansion. We can trace it, for instance, in the art history of Vasari, um, who, whose entire story about Renaissance art in Italy is predicated on the idea that from Cimabue to, to Raphael, the pupil was better than the master. The idea that we stand on the shoulders of giants, that every teacher brings knowledge to his or her pupils who then take it further, and that there is an upward curve to development, much as there is an upward curve to the state of science and learning, from, um, um, from Copernicus to Galileo to Newton, in technology and in the art, Europe is predicated on a superiority of progress, of getting better and better. Um, and uh, this is a defining characteristic in this encounter with savages um, and, and people outside uh, the old world system. Now the idea of order and progress as a typical European marker of, of um, superiority is not just something I pulled out of the hat. I'm, I mean, I'm summarizing a lot of source research here. And, and one source I'd like to share with you because it's Irish. And it shows how lingering this discourse is. One of the first European Western expansions was the English conquest of Ireland in the 12th to 13th century. Even before the Atlantic was crossed, uh, the savage clans of Ireland were subjected by the Normans who had just conquered England. And one of the great apologists for the English conquest, crown conquest of Ireland was Geraldus Cambrensis, um, who writes a discourse 
on Ireland, which might be called colonial, and certainly prefigures a lot of colonial discourse. And this is, and he is very classicist, even though he's a 12th century cleric. We don't have to wait until the Renaissance for the lingering tradition of classical learning that we see reflected in Geraldus's ethnocentrism. This is uh, a very telltale passage in Geraldus's description of Ireland. This people is one of forest dwellers and inhospitable, a people living off beasts and like beasts, a people that still adheres to the most primitive way of pastoral living. In other words, they follow their flocks around. They are nomadic, they are not sedentary. For as humankind progresses from the forest to the tilled field, and from there to village life and civil society, this people, unwilling to engage in the farmer's hard work, heedless of material comfort, and with a firm dislike of the rules and legalities of civil intercourse, has been able neither to improve nor to outgrow the life that they are used to in forest and pasture. This would have been written about Papuas or about Australian Aborigines, 12th century. And we see a very strong, and if you look at Geraldus's intertextual references, you see it's based in Caesar and Horace and whatever classical texts that were, that were available to schoolmen in the 12th century. And he is breathing the spirit of Caesar, Sallust, and Cicero, that the idea that city life is civilized life. And that there is indeed an age from pastoral life in the wild countryside to civil life in walled cities with law and order. This Roman Republican ethos is still echoed by this 12th century um, Anglo-Norman cleric. Um, so nomads are most like animals, and that they live like animals and they move around. And civilized people have laws and a sedentary lifestyle in uh, ordered societies. So Heraclitus is still uh, echoing around somewhere here. Civilization distinguishes humans from animals. There's definitely a sort of great chain of being here. The further we are removed from the state of animal life, the more highly civilized we are. Civilization is an evolving progress. Mankind evolves from, from the forests to the tilled fields to the you know, urban settlements. And civilization is anchored in cities and in the rule of law. Note um, that uh, the others in this image of Europe um, are a mix and gathering of people who are somehow nomadic or living in forests and, and not having decent houses. And if we look at the others of the High Middle Ages and the early modern period, you see within Europe the Celts, the Laps, the Finns, Baltic nations, certainly how they are described by the uh, Teutonic Knights um, uh, in the 12th century, uh, Mongols and Tartars from Russian chronicles, and the Saracens uh, that are described in the Mediterranean. So all around the edges of Europe, we see people who move around, uh, who are, and whose characteristics are that they are lo as lawless as well as nomadic. Their non-sedentary lifestyle implies lawlessness. They inhabit open land without cities or roads, and later on that will become the exotic image of Central Asia, of the Sahara, with their Bedouin caravans crossing through the trackless desert, and of the American prairies with Sioux and Cherokees galloping around with their wigwams. So, you know, the, the, but the, the, if you like, the discursive stock in trade for schematizing and valorizing these lifestyles is already firmly in place by the time the encounter with the non-European other starts. I will go very briefly then on the further retrenchment of what is properly European. Uh, at some point, um, the despotic regimes of Eastern Europe drop out of what is properly European um, and further, later on you get the retrenchment of Europe in the 18th century where the Protestant uh, mercantile Riberian work ethic uh, places of Northern Europe 
uh, as middle class uh, re Republican Enlightenment places are distinguished from the um, totalitarian Catholic clientelist Southern European regimes. So what you get is a gradual condensation of Europe, as I call it. The footprint of what is considered to be part of the European in-group shrinks over the centuries as Europe is more and more predicated on the notion of order and progress. The persistent trope in all these phases of, of a geographic retrenchment of first-person Europe is the idea that outsiders are non-sedentary, threatening the domesticity of an ordered Europe. And this notion of a domesticity, again, has very, very deep-rooted uh, discursive and uh, mentality echoes. Um, I mentioned Heraclitus. Um, notions like the Greek notion of cosmos uh, for an ordered world, uh, the Latin notion of the domus, and inside the domus, the house, there is the focus. The focus is the focal point of the household. It's where the fire is, uh, is built. Uh, so the foyer, uh, the, the place where you are at home, is centered around uh, a marshaled fire. And the most one of the most important gods in the Roman pantheon in Greece, in Greek it was Hestia, is Vesta. Uh, one of the oldest cults in Rome is that of the Vestal Virgins. This is the, tem oops, uh, the temple of Vesta. Um, and uh, she's one of the uh, important tutelary deities of the Roman Republic. Um, and she is the goddess of the fireplace. She is what makes the house, the f uh, you know, organizes the, the house around the central point of familiarity and domesticity. Uh, and it is bordered by a lemon, by a threshold, the uh, cordons of the order inside of the household under its pata familias from a lawless outside. Um, and it also very strongly opposes the sedentary versus the nomadic. I would argue um, that uh, with these mentality tropes, we, we, we can unpack the very, very deep rhetorical patterns that make a, a, you know, a, a poster like the UKIP against the migrants. Uh, so viscerally threatening to the elaborate. It opposes uh, these types of domesticity and um, uh, orders worlds versus lawlessness. Now, in whatever time I've left, and that's a quarter of an hour, that should, should work. Um, I uh, want to complicate this picture a little bit. I mean, it, it's a very, very highly generalized, broad brush summary of a lot of digested source materials. Uh, from, from many centuries, so it's almost giddily superficial, and I'm aware of that. And uh, it would be uh, irresponsible of me not to look at some counter-discourse. And certainly, um, in the course of the last two centuries, uh, two very important uh, counter-movements have come up. Um, there is one that uh, nomads can be cool, or maybe nomads can be hot. You know, uh, that somewhere there is a, a xenophilia, as well as xenophobia in, in European culture, that uh, from Marco Polo to uh, Livingston, people like to go nomadic and, and do things, explore things in the world. And the other is that domesticity isn't all that it's cracked up to be, and that sometimes these houses are uncanny and don't work, and they're in the, in the root sense of the German unheimlich, that the, the heim, the house, is somehow something disruptive, and that it might take the form of a terrible, terrible topology that has neither inside nor outside, that has walls but no rooms, and a place where you're not sheltered but where you might get lost and where you might encounter monsters, the labyrinth. And Europe also has a self-image as a labyrinth. So I want to oppose these alternative modalities in the few minutes that are left.
These are hot nomads, gypsies. Uh, it's something that I was, Europe's inner uh, nomadic non-sedentary tribes. I think a lot of the, um, this is a, a scene from, uh, from Russia with Love, a James Bond movie that you know, is, is invoking all the stereotypes of a good guy versus bad and an important scene is set in a gypsy encampment. Um, and that is uh, this sort of a place, and what's typical of gypsies in the uh, 18th, 19th, 20th century imagination, uh, if we do an immigology of gypsies, is that they always have their fire outside. So they don't have a focus, they don't have a vest, and they eat their food, and they have their familial dinner gatherings under the open sky, and there is something deeply inside out about their lifestyle. And by the same token, they are also habitually associated with lawlessness and with threatening. They steal children, they rob you, they deal you, and they, they don't obey the laws. And so, because they are non-sedentary, they're everything that Geraldus Cambrensis was fearing about the Irish, this, this nomadic lifestyle. Um, uh, at the same time, around the Romantic period, um, they get a certain, you know, uh, spicy flavor. And, you know, this is uh, a sort of a, a kitsch picture that was reproduced in, in tens of thousands of copies and was hanging in middle-class households in a lot of German, Belgian, Dutch and, uh, houses. Uh, you know, a gypsy girl with, uh, you know, opulent forms and a sultry look in her eyes. And obviously, something that made the père de famille, the, you know, the middle-class civil servants in the household, hmm. You know, is there more than just having, you know, uh, bacon and eggs for breakfast with my wife and my children? What is, isn't there a greater? So the lure of travels and the romantic idea of bundles and the gypsies as an, as an incorporation of that. The romantic gypsy as, a, as a, a, an idea that this is a cool or interesting alternative to domesticity and to a sedentary lifestyle comes up with romanticism. Uh, at the same time, by the way, that philosemitism does, so, uh, and also at the same time that Saladin uh, becomes a, a cool Islamic Arab warrior, so we get, we get sympathy for our old hate figures. Um, and it begins with Pushkin in Russia, it's set in Bessarabia, present-day Moldova, his poem uh, Sigani, um, Narbut in Lithuania, a history of the, uh, of, of the gypsies, Konichano from Romania, while he's in Berlin, writes L'Histoire de Siga. Of course, you have George Borrow in England, the man who wrote the Romany Rye, one of the most interesting testimonials of actually embedded life among gypsy communities. Incidentally, I use gypsy or because it's habitual, it's easy. It's, it's a word that is resisted as denigrating and stigmatizing by the people from that ethnic community. I ought to say Roma and Sinti or something else. Uh, I mean no harm, it's just sometimes easier to slip out with that, and apologize. Uh, and I certainly do not mean to stigmatize a much maligned and much persecuted and unjustly uh, persecuted group of people. Um, the most famous uh, wayward criminal gypsy was Carmen, in the story that Costello Mirimé, uh, encountered, uh, encountered in the bandit-infested wilds of southern Spain, where, you know, we have the, uh, the bandits around campfires, of course, planning their new attacks on cities, and where a gypsy girl habitually haunting the Alhambra um, is combining the lawlessness of the gypsy with all the charms of the femme fatale, another 19th century uh, uh, thing, turned into an opera and turned into multiple spin-offs. Um, 
The Hungarian Rhapsodies by Liszt are prefaced by a massive introduction in which Liszt says, this is my way of um, documenting gypsy music among the Magyars, because he sees Hungary as a sort of symbiosis between the Magyars and the Roma. Uh, and and uh, uh, Liszt actually writes a book about um, the, the Bohemian and the Leur Musique en Hongrie, in which he says that gypsy music is the true music of Hungary. And uh, we have Moriokai with the Gypsy Baron, which becomes a popular Viennese operetta. And we have, in the wake of George Borrow, the Gypsy or Society. The word always indicates another, somebody from the outside. So Gypsy, Gitano, Tsigani, Tsigaina is from Egyptian, would be Tsiganus, uh, so somebody from outside Europe. And uh, in the Romantic period, the West European world is Bohemian, Bohemia, somebody who comes from what is now the Czech lands, so from Central Europe. Um, and of course, a, uh, somebody from Bohemia, a Bohemia, as Franz Liszt very well understood, is a Romantic. Every Romantic feels he is a Gypsy, he is at least a Bohemian. So you have the Seine de la Vie de Bohème, from which Puccini's opera La Bohème is based, which are just artists living like Gypsies living on cheap Algerian wine and spaghetti in garrets without central heating. That is as good as living on, in a tent, you know. Uh, the bohemian lifestyle is, in a way, an urbanized gypsy lifestyle. Um, and uh, from that moment, obviously, we get a very strong, you know, escapist gypsy image for the middle-class imagination of Western Europe. Um, uh, fashion, crime, anything, I won't trace it. And even now, in our, um, you know, Postmodern ironic lifestyle in the post-communist world. We see that in films like you know, those of Kusturica, uh, the Roma are still what I would call postmodern auto hipsters in a deregulated world. And we like, you know, the Tarak, the Hajduks, and all these, you know, uh, ass-kicking gypsies from the Balkans because they're really what we need in our bored suburban lifestyles here in the Northwest. So, if you, while there is this sympathy for the other. The idea that this might save us from our terrible domesticity, our terrible sedentary lifestyle. Um, there is also a, a sort of a discontent of civilization, uh, as Freud, Freud would call it, when Europe loses its facile Eurocentrism and begins to see that, in fact, its role in the world is not just one of progress, sweetness, and lightness. Uh, Europe, uh, in the 19th century, begins to develop a strong sense of guilt about, my God, what have we done to the rest of the world? Um, it begins with uh, some of the uh, reports that come out of Stanley's travels through Central Africa. Uh, some of these reports sh uh, tell very unsavory stories indeed about how certain members of the expedition into the Sudan uh, actually uh, bought a slave girl and told two uh, native uh, bearers in the caravan to slaughter, cook, and eat the slave girl because they wanted to see how cannibalism works. So cannibalism was actually performed by Europeans as an actualization of their ethnocentric ideas of what darkest Africa was like. Reports of this came out in the New York Times and caused an incredible furore. And they are really at the root of uh, Conrad's novel, Heart of Darkness. The idea that Europe takes into Africa the very barbarism that it sets out to civilize. That the barbarism of dark Africa is not something that's there for us to improve, but that it is caused by us and caused by our presence. And that Europe has its heart of darkness inside itself. 
in terms of the human personality. This is argued through by Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Inside every scientist, there is a Neanderthal, Neanderthal Jack the Ripper serial murder who can break out at any moment, uh, and in the Freudian view of the personality. So barbarism is not outside. It's not outside the city walls. This distinction between an ordered inside and a barbarous outside does not work. We are the barbarians. And this becomes, from the 1860s, 1870s onwards, a very strong uh, European self-image, certainly after the uh, genocides of the 20th century, to the point that Tony Judd could say with some justified sarcasm that Europe is now marketing its bad conscience as the one thing with which it wants to improve the world. Saying, don't be like us. Do as we say, don't do as we do because we've been there and boy, we're bad. And so you have to believe us because we've been bad. So it's a very strange discourse of we have authority because we have been barbarians. Um, uh, you could see, uh, I won't give you the So Europe now has an identity where the other of Europe is Europe itself. It's become the continent of self-interrogation, and perversely, Europe derives some sense of moral authority by saying Iraqis and Americans and Israelis don't question their own values, but we do, and that is what makes us better. We second guess ourselves, and that is some <coughs> form of superior uh, moral status. Um, and we can trace that in the progress of the labyrinth. The idea that good and bad are not separated in an inside and outside, but that good and bad, inside and outside, interpenetrate. And just as a little analogy, I want to trace, like the way I trace the octagon, I want to trace the labyrinth from Crete, where Theseus confronted the Minotaur in the first engineering feat of the Western world, that masterpiece by Daedalus, the man who invented flying, the great first technocrat of Europe, built Europe's first labyrinth. From there, we see labyrinths in the Kasbah, the great other of Europe on the southern Mediterranean shore, those houses that are a mess, that are a jumble, that are unordered. Um, from the Kasbah of Algiers, in a novel like Pepe le Moko, which becomes a successful movie, we get the Kasbah of um, Casablanca, where everybody comes to Rix, and where we have a multi-ethnic melting pot where good and bad are confused and where the world is in a, in a terrible state of, of chaos and moral confusion and we need somebody like Rick to sort it out. And from there we see how uh, it goes into the Vienna, the post-war Vienna ruins of the third man and the sewers and how existentialist problems are pursued um, in, in, in a central Europe that is ruins, black market, deregulation, and a mess, and where Europe, the state of Europe is one of moral confusion. Um, it is too late for me to show the clips of that, but if you go online and you see the first five minutes of where the voiceover presents the Casbah of Algiers in the French movie Pépé de Moco, remade as Casbah in, uh, in 1938 in, uh, in Hollywood, if you look at the first three minutes where you see the, the arrows on the map, how everybody comes to, the, to, the, uh, to Casablanca, and then they wait in Casablanca, and wait, and wait, and wait. And you have the Bulgarian girl, and you have you know, Peter Laura playing, or you know, Tizen or Sidney Greenstein playing a Sardinian, and you have all these, these ethnicities together in the Casbah of Casablanca. And then you move to, um, uh, to the, uh, the labyrinth of uh, deregulated Cold War divided post-war Vienna where, again, you have the terrible moral dilemma uh, phrased by Orson Welles, you know, um, 
for it. In Italy, for four, 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed, and they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love and 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. So we get this te these terrible dilemmas where achievement and evil or barbarism are no longer the easy polarities that they used to be. From there, we still are here. Thank you very much. Have a good conference.